Hello, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist, Episode 70. Welcome back. The purpose of this podcast is to explore philosophy, psychology, and current science with an emphasis on the great 19th century philosopher George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. In this episode, I will attempt to show that it is in fact how we understand ourselves and others that gives us the basis for understanding our true self-consciousness and where this true self-consciousness lies. It is about understanding our own freedom. This is our true spirit, and it is a freedom that we share with others. I hope to show how only by recognizing this freedom in the other, in the other person, something which is inside of them, something which makes them human, can we understand our own freedom, our own humanity. I believe it is essential to understand our shared spiritual freedom and selfhood in order to possess it ourselves. That it is only by recognizing the spirit within others that we can come to know it in us. And I bring this up for the following reason. We live in a deeply divided world today, and I believe that the electronic global village we now inhabit is a major cause of it. And I've discussed this problem often here in the Cunning of Guys podcast. It was discussed in detail in two specific episodes, episode 21, The Rise Return of Tribalism, Technology, McLuhan, and Hegel, and in episode 54, Can Hegel Save Us from a Brutal Return to Tribalism? As I discussed in these episodes, media scholar Marshall McLuhan correctly predicted the rise of identity politics as a result of the shift from the literary age to the electronic age. From the telegraph to the telephone to the radio through television and now the internet, the visual individual orientation of the Gutenberg galaxy gave way to the all-at-onceness togetherness of the global village. And I must say, I'm continually amazed at how well McLuhan predicted what was to come back in the 1960s. If, if you ever want to check out some of his, when he was on TV and stuff, it's really remarkable what, what he had to say. But there's a dark side to this change that he talked about. This new environment that McLuhan identified resulted in a step forward, as well as a step backward, if you will, toward a nouveau tribalism which harkens back to the ancient tribal societies where the spoken word interacted with nature in one all-encompassing environment. This has meant, among an increasing percentage of citizens, a loss of the ability to find much meaning and identity in a big-tent nation-state, or even in a big-tent political party. The fragmentation and specialization of media and politics has put identity groups, tribes, if you will, as a driving force today in many places. We have moved from a focus on the individual and the drive toward individual rights resulting from the print age to the new tribalism of the global village. And this move to tribalism threatens the big tents of nation states, political parties, and even religions. They are no longer seen as providing the identity we require in the global village. So we look to groups with which we have tighter emotional bonds and find our identity and belonging to these groups. And often these tribes are defined as much by being against some other group than what they actually stand for themselves. And today, many can be defined as solely by what they're against, who they're against. And history has shown that tribal societies often fought brutally for recognition, and the new tribes of today are increasingly doing so. One more thing, our global village today is fueled by emotion rather than being run by reasoning adults. 
Our passions and feelings are what are important, not our reasoning. Reasoning has become suspect, is linear, hearkening back to the print age. Reason today is often viewed as sophistry, using words to carefully manipulate opinion. As contemporary philosopher Alistair McIntyre calls this new type of person the emotive self, and we discussed him in his work back in episode 22. And you see this trend everywhere. It is more important how you feel than how you think. Pop music is a good example. Today, it's much more about personal feelings of the singer-songwriter. They write about their own experience, a specific boyfriend that broke up with them or trouble they're having with their, their girlfriend. And where previous hit music, hit songs, spoke to the wants and needs of the broader audience in general, things that everybody can identify with. So as I said, because of this move to tribalism, nation-states are being threatened. And while America is traditionally been a melting pot with all the troubles that that can bring, European countries are now experiencing this as well through massive immigration. England is no longer solely English. France is no longer solely French. Germany no longer solely German. And Italy no longer solely Italian. There is no more automatic default vision of the country and its people and what it stands for. And this tribalism and division is a major problem throughout most of the world today. Francis Fukuyama, a contemporary scholar and historian, feels that this trend has also negated his original end of history thesis, which he took from his understanding of Hegel. He explores this and talks much about Hegel and the need for recognition in his 2018 book, Identity. I believe this is the monumental problem of our time, and that's why I'm addressing it here today. It has essentially paralyzed and polarized the government of the United States, and our media is polarized as well. And all this will have to eventually be sublated somehow, to use Hegel's term. And as with most important things, there's no easy answer here. However, I do believe the best hope at present is to throw some light on the true nature of the problem. Now, of course, I'm aware that things only become clear after the fact. This is Hegel's famous dictum about the owl of Minerva taking flight only at dusk, meaning our understanding of the situation only becomes clear. We only have wisdom of it, which the owl of Minerva symbolizes. We only have wisdom of it at the end of the day when the dust is settled. So we may have to see how this whole problem unfolds and settles, but we can't really assess what's going on from our perspective now. And I'm aware of that. However, I do want to address something here that's fundamentally important to consider as we view ourselves and our fellow human beings now. And this may seem very naive. It may seem just like a platitude with no real meaning. But I believe if one drills down to just what it means to be a self-conscious human, one can see some light here and a bit of hope, I believe. I plan to address two points regarding this. The first one is the issue of recognition, and we'll get into this. And the second one is, is a big issue of forgiveness, and how does this concept of forgiveness work into what I'm going to be talking about, about being self-conscious. So let's first deal with recognition. Recognition is often seen as the source of tribalism in the global village. In Fukuyama's book on identity, he clearly links identity groups to the need for recognition in a Hegelian sense. But let me back up here. Hegel identifies the need for recognition in his famous passage in the Phenomenology of Spirit in the Lordship and Bondsman section, 
And this is alternatively known as the master-slave dialectic. And we did an entire episode on this back in 2020, episode 13. Essentially, Hegel posits that for one to be self-conscious, one must be confronted with another self-consciousness. Otherwise, there's no concept of self. In other words, there's no me without a you. And this involves more than just recognizing another life form. The human consciousness recognizes within itself a freedom. It is a freedom that is different from the animals. It is a freedom to imagine a better way to improve things and not to be beholden to instincts. It is even the freedom to choose life or death itself, going against the primal desire of all living things. But in order to know that it has this freedom, it needs to be recognized by another self-consciousness as having that freedom. And importantly, it needs to be something that the other self-consciousness is denied and would desire to have. So, in in order to accomplish this in in this famous story of Hegel's, a battle ensues to see who is willing to go all the way. Uh, There's a fight to the death to prove who's the true free one and who must see the freedom only in the other. So, according to Hegel's story, one self-consciousness backs down. One is not willing to risk its life, not willing to have skin in the game, as they say. And you end up then with a Lord who is free and a bondsman who is not and who desires the freedom that the Lord has. Hegel sums this up nicely in a passage. Let me read it. Quote, It is only through the staking of one's life that freedom is won. Only thus is it proved that the individual has not risked his life may well be recognized as a person, but he's not yet attain to the truth of this recognition as an independent self-consciousness. But this is not the end of the story. At first, the Lord or Master requires the bondsman or slave to not be free in order for them to see and desire the freedom of the Lord. But then the Lord realizes that if the bondsman is not free, then they have no free opinion of the Lord. And Hegel further goes on to show that the bondsman doing the work and the service to the Lord, eventually finds their own freedom in the work that they do. So that's where Hegel leaves it. But I want to bring an important point here, that what Hegel's talking about is is more than just recognition. As Robert Wallace says in his 2005 book, Hegel's Philosophy of Reality, Freedom, and God, it is not just recognition as in a membership in a club that Hegel's talking about. It is deeper It is recognition of the freedom in each other. And what is key here is that without recognizing the freedom in the other, you are keeping it blind in yourself. It is not just something that is defined by a club or a religion or a nation. It is within us all. And it is this fact that I believe we need to keep in mind when we ourselves identify with the group. We need to realize that the other group, the other party, the other nation also is an I, just like you. And it It is this freedom, the spirit that makes us free, all of us, whether we recognize it or not. I believe this is required if one is to obtain full self-consciousness. Now, some have called this cosmic consciousness. Others call it Christ consciousness. Whatever one calls it, it's not unique to Christianity, but something we all share. Although, as I said, many of us are not conscious of this fact, which I'll get into in a moment. Now we come to the second thing I wanted to discuss. That is forgiveness. Big term means a lot of things to a lot of people, but let's discuss what I'm talking about here. When we say it is necessary to see freedom, spirit within all individuals, it is important to recognize what this entails and what it doesn't entail. 
And this does require us to separate the true inner self of somebody from one's actions and one's beliefs. And so doing, what I'm talking about is not condoning something, forgetting or excusing any harmful action, nor am I talking about minimizing one's own hurt or, or denying one's anger. And I'm not talking about denying justice or accountability in the case of uh, ill treatment or a crime. I'm not talking about pardoning. So what am I talking about? It is in recognizing in another what is in yourself at the deepest level, spirit and I. Every individual is an I just like you. Now, of course, this spiritual inner self, this true self that is in each of us, some have no idea it's there. Others get a small sense that it is there and they just leave it at that. Still others have a feeling that it is there and they actively work against it for, for some reason. And some just choose to listen. And it, it may happen once or twice in a lifetime. For others, it, it can be more of a regular uh, experience. And for others, it can be a daily guide. In, in the Bible, in, in Matthew twenty two fourteen, 14, it says, Many are called, but few are chosen. But as Kenneth Wapnick, a teacher of the Course in Miracles, says, quote, All are called, yet few choose to listen, end quote. Now, I recognize that sin, guilt, and punishment are concepts that are foundational in the world, and we're not going to get around that. And certainly many have experienced truly unjust acts that, that take a tremendous emotional toll. And again, I'm not minimizing this at all. But ultimately, true self-awareness is recognizing the spirit within. And this can only be accomplished by recognizing the spirit within others, all others, whether they see it or not, no matter the deed, no matter how bad. The same spirit is within us all. And to recognize it in ourselves, we must see it in the other. And again, one final time, I'm not minimizing that people should be held accountable for their actions. They should be. They need to be for society to function. Society needs its laws, both civil and criminal, to function properly. But seeing and recognizing that the other is an I, and it's not just you are the, that are an I, um, is very important. And this is more than just recognition of the other. It's more than just saying, I see you. It is recognition in the other of what is in ourselves. It's also um, what allows us to transcend our own finiteness and recognize the infinite spirit within. So, is there a way out of this mess, even if you recognize all this? Well, I believe that what has to take place is a separation of what we recognize as one's inner soul, their conscience within, and to separate that from one's actions and beliefs. Is this possible? Yeah, I think so. Now, there are different levels of this, and they require different uh, mindsets for each of them. On a small level, you have things like what's going on with cancel culture, where one misunderstood tweet or comment can be taken wrong, and the offending person is fired or their speech is canceled. There's a demonstration and so forth. There's some really horrendous examples of this. These situations are usually not criminal or civil crimes, and often when this occurs, the past history of a person is not considered nor what their mindset was at the time of writing it. It's just the words that are judged, and it's up to the judger to perceive what those words mean. Then, of course, you can move up the scale to insults, crimes, and bad crimes, crimes against humanity, and ultimately to horrors like the Holocaust. Now, this brings up an interesting point. Slavoj Žižek wrote, and he's claims to be paraphrasing Hegel here that, quote, 
Hatred resides in the gaze, which recognizes hatred everywhere, end quote. Although he does not state the specific reference that he's, par- that he's paraphrasing, apparently he is referring to the beautiful soul in the conscience section of the phenomenology of spirit. And he may be paraphrasing contemporary philosopher Timothy Merton here. In an essay on environmentalism, Merton references Hegel's beautiful soul concept and contends, let me read it, quote, It's the gaze that constitutes the world as the thing over yonder, is evil as such. The evil of the beautiful soul's gaze is only evil when one remains at a remove from what one perceives as evil out in the world. So long as it remains a distant gaze, evil can flourish in the world. How do we truly exit from the beautiful soul? By taking responsibility for our attitude, for our gaze, end quote. And Merton claims that he gets he gets this from Hegel. Now, following on this point, Zizek points out that the accuser must confess and renounce their own hatred. And often in some instances, there's more hatred in the accuser than in the condemned act itself. I mentioned Kenneth Wapnick before, and, and I covered the story of his in a previous episode, but let me relate it again. He said at one of his seminars that I attended when he was riding on one of the Freedom Rider buses back in the 1960s in the United States, where many Northerners would go down to the Deep South on buses to advocate for voter rights for blacks. And he said there was probably more hatred um, among those on the bus than there were in the bigots (laughs) that they were trying to change. Now, of course, these Freedom Marches were good things, and they did result in substantial change, but you get the point about hatred also being in the gaze. But Zizek also asked in the article whether there are limits to such forgiveness. And that is the key question we are addressing. He brings up Hitler. He states, quote, can we recollectively forgive Hitler? And if the answer is no, is this because Hitler cannot be forgiven or because we ourselves are not yet at a high enough level of ethical reflection to do so? The only way to do so, which avoids regressing to the position of a beautiful soul who passes judgment from a position of disinterested separatism, is to endorse the second option, that our castigation of Hitler as evil must be a reflexive determination of the evil that persists in ourselves. That is, it shows the non-reflective state of the position from which we pass judgments, end quote. Now, even when adopting Hegel's approach, this does not mean, as Zizek states, quote, you are now forgiven, you are no longer really bad, end quote. The answer, I believe, is to realize that the Holocaust was a human problem. And yes, the capacity to commit such a horror did exist in the humans that participated in that act. It exists in humanity. But the difference to me is seeing it as a human problem, not a German problem, not a Nazi problem. And not a problem that does not touch me, the beautiful soul, because only because only others, you over there, over yonder, do this. Now, the ego is very good at playing the innocent victim card game. And A Course in Miracles has a wonderful passage that addresses this point. Let me read it. Quote, A concept of the self is made by you. It bears no likeness to yourself at all. It is an idol made to take the place of your reality as son of God. The concept of the self the world would teach is not the thing that it appears to be, for it is made to serve two purposes, but one which the mind can recognize. The first presents the face of innocence, the aspect acted on, 
It is this face that smiles and charms and even seems to love. It searches for companions and looks at times with pity on the suffering and sometimes sometimes offers solace. It believes that it is good even within an evil world. This aspect can grow angry, for the world is wicked and unable to provide the love and shelter innocence deserves. And so this face is often wet with tears at the injustices the world accords to those who would be generous and good. This aspect never makes the first attack, but every day a hundred little things make small assaults upon its innocence, provoking it to irritation and at last to open insults and abuse. The face of innocence, the concept of the self so proudly wears, can tolerate attack in self-defense, for it is not a, for is it not a well-known fact the world deals harshly with defenseless innocence. No one who makes a picture of himself omits his face, for he has need of it. The other side he does not want to see. Beneath the face of innocence there is a terrible displacement and a fear so devastating that the face which smiles above it must forever look away, lest it perceive the treachery it hides. Subquote. As you look at me, you stand condemned because of what I am. End subquote. On this conception of the self, the world smiles with approval, for it guarantees the pathways of the world are kept safe. Here is the central lesson that ensures your brother is condemned eternally, for what you are has now become his sin, for this is no... For for this is no forgiveness possible. No longer does it matter what he does, for your accusing finger points to him unwaveringly and deadly in its aim. It points to you as well, but this is kept still deeper in the midst below the face of innocence. And in these shrouded vaults are all his sins and yours preserved and kept in darkness, where they cannot be perceived as errors, which the light would surely show." Well, that's a pretty powerful statement, and you can see the similarity there between that and what Hegel's talking about with his beautiful soul, which is another way to talk about the, uh, the face of innocence. The answer, I believe, is that these problems, these sins, are human problems. They are errors we as humans share. And by accepting this, we also accept the other side of the coin, our own shared freedom as human beings. The spiritual part of humankind that transcends finiteness It is not me and you, but us, united in an I, united in freedom, united in selfhood, united in spirit, united together to make the world better. Our problems do not just belong to the other, but to humanity as a whole. The Nazi regime that instituted the Holocaust was defeated. Many gave their lives for this to be accomplished. Hegel rightfully called history a slaughter bench, and The advance of spirit in the world is by no means a cakewalk, but a key notion in understanding ourselves is understanding our underlying connection to spirit, something we all share, and to use this connection to motivate us to do good deeds and improvements, even on a small scale in an individual life. So, we've covered a lot here, some heavy topics. To summarize, we live in increasingly fractious times. And this is not just nation versus nation, but na- but within nations as well. While we all must fight for what we believe is right, we need also in the same breath to recognize our common bond of humanity. Just as political parties may argue on how best to move the country forward, they cannot just abandon the country wholesale to make this happen. As Lincoln famously said, paraphrasing Jesus, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Humanity divided against itself cannot stand. So that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks 
so much for listening once again. I really do appreciate it. I, I'm glad that more and more of you are, are checking out the podcast Facebook page where I will be posting specific references for this episode. And I'm now trying to comment there almost daily. So be sure to like that page and follow it to stay updated on just, on just what's going on. And also, please tell your like-minded friends about the Cunning of Guys podcast if you think they would enjoy it and benefit from it. Please share my posts on your own Facebook page or on social media. I would love that. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Cunning of Geist. And I've recently set up an Instagram account, and but I've not really posted anything yet there. It's Stay tuned on that. It's, it's not really a philosophically inclined type of social media. It's more picture-oriented. But if I find some interesting pictures I'll, that relate to Hegel and stuff we talked about here, young I'll, um, McLuhan, I'll, I'll certainly post them there. So you, know, you may want to check that out as well. You can follow me there as well. So in closing, let me say, as always, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist. See you next time.